episode 281, Badly Managed Health System Supply Chains, Steal from Patients and the Providers Who Let This Happen. Today, I speak with Rob Austin from GuideHouse. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. You know what the second biggest cost line item is on most health systems profit and loss report? Supplies. Buying things like artificial knees, stents, service contracts. It's estimated that an average hospital can save more than 12 million bucks a year if they manage their supply chain better. And interestingly, oftentimes, care actually improves as a result. For context, that wasted 12 million bucks could pay for 165 more nurses or 50 more PCPs. It's the cost of 3,100 knee replacements. All this, by the way, is according to Navigant. Does it bother you that so many people in this country can't afford care and nurses and PCPs aren't getting raises? And some of it is because leadership at many hospitals is not adequately managing their cost of goods. Maybe I'm an idealist, but the human consequences of this inadequacy certainly bothers me. Today, I am talking with Rob Austin. Rob is Director of Performance Excellence at GuideHouse. He works a ton on supply chains at hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. Quick industry newsflash, GuideHouse is a new entity comprised of legacy PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers, government business, which has combined with Navigant. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Rob Austin, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thanks. Good to be here, Stacey. Obviously, hospitals are under a lot of pressure right now, financial, having to quickly stand operational, up operational, right. like, the, you know, things are coming at health systems from all different directions. So it might be an awkward time, but also the best time to be frank, to be talking about supply chain. I mean, like, you know, it was highlighted with the PPP issues in the supply chain. But as we're talking about the COVID pandemic and other things that are going on adjacent to that, maybe you could articulate what the why is here, why this is a really good time, despite all these, you know, potentially other priorities for a hospital to get a bead on what is going on relative to their supply chain. A couple things I would say, Stacey. First of all, the pandemic created, like you said, all kinds of challenges for hospitals and health systems. It created a number of supply chain challenges. With our clients who we've been working with over the last couple of months, we really focused on getting absolutely critical supplies for them, swabs, testing kits, PPE. We spent a bunch of time just helping them stay open, really. That said, in the bigger picture, supply costs, non-labor costs are the second largest cost any health system has. The largest, of course, being labor. GuideHouse does a study every year of healthcare supply chains. And what we've identified year after year is that the top performing supply chains are dramatically more efficient and stronger and more cost effective than the rest. So the top 25% are exponentially lower cost and more effective in securing supplies than the, than the other 75%. 
it's like a barbell. Like you've got some great leaders and then some really large laggards, but it's like the top of the bell curve is more like a trough. That, that's exactly right. To quantify it, if every health system could get to the top 25 percent in terms of their cost performance around supplies, there's a $24 billion annual opportunity in the United States alone for health systems. So this is very substantial. Let me interject there because the name of the show is Relentless Health Value. So I'm a little bit less interested in how much hospital systems can make and a little bit more interested in how creating a really efficient supply chain helps patients across this country writ large. Could I safely say that if a hospital system has a really inefficient supply chain, let's just take the negative example, that it negatively impacts patients? Absolutely. We all know that healthcare costs for individuals and for companies are way too high, out of control, and a lot of those costs are unnecessary. Health systems are too expensive and care is too expensive and supplies being the second largest cost for a health system are part of the problem. That's a, a startling number that supplies are the second biggest cost. So if the supply chain is really inefficient and hospitals are paying way too much, you know, if we're doing cost accounting here, that the cost of goods is way too high. Is this an underlying reason why there's many health systems who have said early and often that, for example, one X Medicare, the Medicare reimbursements cause them to lose money. Is this a reason why? This is absolutely a reason why. Now, it's not the only reason. Some of the other reasons, of course, are labor costs, particularly provider costs. Some of it may have to do with payment structure and schedules. But one key factor is cost of supplies being too high. As a result, health systems, and particularly health systems that may have other economic disadvantages. So for instance, rural hospitals and health systems are in real trouble. Guidehouse did a study on this as well, and there's one in four rural health systems are in danger of shutting their doors in the next 12 to 24 months. Safety net hospitals, where there's a very high percentage of Medicare, and in particular, a high percentage of Medicaid, which reimburses at an even lower rate than Medicare and significantly lower than commercial payers. Those hospitals are in dire straits financially. Unfortunately, they're not the lowest cost providers in terms of the lowest cost of supplies. The strong Supply chains, we talked about the top 25%, you talked about the bell curve, our health systems like, for instance, UPMC has a very strong supply chain and they have been extremely profitable and they are much different than a safety net hospital or Intermountain in Utah. It's really a case to a fairly large degree of haves and have nots. And the haves, and this is not true just of supply chain, but it certainly applies as to supply chain as well. The haves have better people in terms of more training. They have better technology, better access to data, better processes. And then the have-nots are falling farther and farther behind. And that's only going to be exacerbated by the financial impact of this pandemic, wherein if hospitals, I in an interview two interviews ago, I interviewed Peter Hayes and, and from the Purchasing Alliance of Maine. And one of the things that he said is that health systems are, in quotes, addicted to basically cost-shifting inefficiencies to employer and commercial payers. But, you know, 
that works as long as there's a sufficient number of commercial and employer payers. As that number starts to decrease, it becomes less and less possible for, you know, inefficiencies basically to get covered by higher re- reimbursement rates. So from what you're saying, I'm understanding it's, it's going to become an even more perilous situation if people don't get a handle on their supply chain. Yes, absolutely. Most health systems are not, and you referenced this before, are not Medicare break-even. They talk about getting to Medicare. So if, if 100% of your reimbursements were Medicare, can you break even? Can you make money as, as a hospital and health system? And, and 80% of hospitals, the last stat that I'd seen, cannot break even on Medicare alone. So they're reliant, like you say, on commercial payers. And currently, we think about it, 40 million unemployed people in, the, in this country due to the pandemic, they don't have commercial health insurance right now. Many of them, a large percentage of them will lose their commercial health insurance the reimbursement will go down significantly, not even to needing to get for for hospitals, needing to get to Medicare reimbursement break even. They need to get to Medicaid reimbursement for for some of these hospitals, if that makes sense. Also, what I'm understanding you saying is that that is eminently possible without actually reducing, you know, the caliber of care. You know, as you said before, and I'm going to maybe turn it in a little bit of a different direction, there's a $25.7 billion cost savings opportunity. So, you know, if every institution can make their supply chain efficient, then that potentially would enable them to not lose money at a Medicare slash Medicaid reimbursement. Do you think that's possible? One of the interesting things about our annual supply chain studies that's come up repeatedly is, re- relates to that very point. The most efficient supply chains, the top 25% in terms of cost, are also more clinically effective overall in aggregate than the rest. So what that says is you can be lower cost in terms of your supplies and also be higher quality. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. And let me give you an example along the lines of reducing variation. That's a term in clinical care. You want to reduce variation, but it's also a term in supply chain and supplies. So if you have, let's say, multiple suppliers for hip and knee replacement and in your operating room, then you've got five different vendors or suppliers. They have all kinds of kits and different products that they'll bring in. There's a different rep for each supplier. So the nurses and even the physicians have to get used to higher variation because you have more suppliers, more supplies, slightly different processes depending on who the supplier is. However, if you reduce that down to let's say two suppliers, there's fewer people in and out in terms of reps. There's more standardization of how the hip replacement or the knee replacement is done because it's the same product with the same process across physicians. There's less variation. And lo and behold, if you have two suppliers of hip and knee products instead of five, you're going to get a lower cost. Well, now this is counterintuitive, I think, for if I'm an orthopedic surgeon, because I'm thinking to myself, far be it for me to pretend I'm an orthopedic surgeon, but that's what's going to happen here. Many of them have said, well, I need my own special product because I want to improve patient outcomes, which is kind of the opposite of what you're saying. I mean, you're basically saying actually by every single surgeon determining what their own version of the best one is, overall, that will reduce patient outcomes. 
Right. That's exactly the challenge health systems go through and administrators and supply chain folks and and physicians go through in trying to standardize on supplies. Let's just talk about orthopedic surgeons as an example. They absolutely don't want to be told by someone who's not a doctor and not a clinician what products they have to use. However, there are a number of extremely high quality options. And if you get a clinician panel of peers, orthopedic surgeon, orthopedic surgeon, deciding together and talking through what is the most clinically effective as well as the most cost effective group of suppliers, then that's where you can have success. It's not going to work by going in and just saying as the, you know, the CFO, oh, you have to switch from this. You're not allowed to use this manufacturer. You're not allowed to use Stryker anymore. You, you have to use Zimmer Biomet. Saying that to your star orthopedic surgeon, that's not going to work. But where we have seen a tremendous amount of effective progress in, in reducing variation around supplies is clinicians peer-to-peer deciding what products they're going to use and what they're not going to use. Another piece of it is you don't want to, and this actually with the the pandemic, this has held true as a lesson. You want to have more than one source of supply and you want to have options. With the orthopedics example, there's five to seven major manufacturers with all kinds of clinical success. If you went from five suppliers down to three or down to two, it can make a dramatic difference in both cost and in reducing variation. We definitely can get to this, but there's been a lot of writing. I think, you know, in one of Marty McCary's books, he talks a lot about how, you know, the people who are in charge of the supply chain effectively are in a whole separate building. Nobody knows who they are. They sit over there and make But what amounts to clinical decisions like, well, you know, we can get away with black and white monitors in the OR instead of color ones without ever consulting with someone who's delivering care and determining whether that is, in fact, a good place to be saving pennies and potentially causing very complicated and expensive complications as a consequence. So, you know, we've talked a lot about reducing variation in medical devices. You know, if we were going to pinpoint what the biggest culprits are of a mismanaged supply chain, would it be that, you know, the hospital is basically just buying too many various units that are, you know, different? Or is there other things going on which are also problematic? Yeah, physician preference items, which are really like orthopedics, for instance, or implants, physician preference items. So that would include pacemakers, spinal implants, hip and knee replacements, stents, catheters. That body of products, which are which are called physician preference items, are one of the biggest opportunities historically. And what about, you know, servicing all these products and whatnot? Because, you know, especially as we move toward a more digital age where it's not just the device anymore, it's, you know, the tech that goes along with it or the service that goes along with it. Is that something that starts to add up? Well, Absolutely. For physician preference items, that expense of servicing is a big part of the overall expense. And there is some historically some semi-insidious behavior going on where physicians are compensated by the device manufacturers for using their products and for advocating their products in clinical studies. So that's not choosing the best product for the best clinical outcome. 
That's choosing a product potentially because you're compensated to use that product. Yikes. Anyway, physician preference items are a big area of opportunity for, but it's not the only area at all. The, uh, another very large area is what we call purchase services. And that's a very broad category, but it includes anything from food service to biomedical engineering. So servicing equipment to facilities, maintenance. Oftentimes there may be multiple contracts for the same thing across a health system because it may be purchased at a particular facility. There's really lack of standardization. And so that's the other we're really honing in on on two areas of opportunity. Those are the two. So we've got purchased services. We've got physician preference items, which includes medical devices and some of the other things that we talked about. Yeah, there's opportunities in other areas as well in distribution. And, and that's one thing I, additionally I wanted to mention, Stacey, in terms of opportunity. For a variety of reasons, the healthcare supply chain is really convoluted. And what I mean by that is there are a number of middlemen involved with getting the product at the, you know, at the right place at the right time. For medical surgical products, there's a distributor and a manufacturer. There's also what's called group purchasing organizations who aggregate spend. So Premier is one, Vizient is another. Those are two of the largest, but there's multiple. And there's regional group purchasing organizations as well. They aggregate spend across hospitals and health systems, but they take a percentage, one, two, or three percent of the fees from the supplier. And then they also take fees from the health system. So it's a a long way of saying that there are all kinds of middlemen and layers of cost that don't necessarily need to be present in the healthcare supply chain. So in other words, if I want to buy something that's carried by my local GPO, I might get a as good or better price going directly to the source as opposed to, you know, footing the bill for a middleman who's adding questionable value. Absolutely. And also, if you go to your GPO, you have to use the supplier they have on contract. You don't have choice to use another supplier. To that point, the top performing supply chains, healthcare supply chains, tend to go it alone. But smaller organizations are not going to be able to do that. And when I say go it alone, they purchase directly and do not utilize a GPO or may utilize a GPO for a very small percentage of their spend. They also do their own distribution. They are there instead of having a distributor for med surge products like a Cardinal Health or an Owens and Minor, they will self-distribute. They take out some of those layers, unnecessary layers. But again, it's difficult, if not impossible, for small to mid-sized health systems, even some large health systems, to be able to create their own infrastructure for an effective supply chain. Let me ask you this. Is part of the issue here a lack of desire, let's just say? Because it's well known that within health systems, cost accounting is not often done. Right. How a lot of times it happens is it's just some kind of like universal numbers. Like, you know, somebody's just looking at the grand total at the bottom of a spreadsheet, you know, like how much did we pay this month? And then just jacking up charge master rates for commercial insurers if they need, you know, an additional 5% to cover it. Like nobody's actually going through and figuring out how much any individual procedure costs. Is that, you know, part of the issue, just that whole structural, I'm going to say just weirdness, if you are thinking about this relative to like any other business in the entire universe? Yeah, there are certainly structural issues inherent to healthcare 
and relating to the healthcare supply chain that make the problem almost intractable unless we rethink the entire system. Data, lack of, of clear data, the convoluted nature of how supplies are purchased, as I described earlier, that is a huge issue. Lack of cost accounting, acumen and will really plays into it. I'm going to draw a conclusion here based on what we've been talking about. It doesn't sound like the supply chain department by themselves is going to be able to address what amounts to an overarching organizational, dare I say, difficulty, right? Absolutely. We're talking C-suite here, correct? Yes. To make an impact on your non-labor cost as a hospital or health system or physician practice, it needs to be driven initially from the C-suite, CEO, COO, CFO. Additionally, you need to be fully engaged with and get the buy-in of your key stakeholders. In particular, we talked about physician preference items, in particular with clinicians and clinician leadership. Without those two elements as a starting point, C-level leadership and clinician direct engagement, it's not going to change. You're, you're, you may around the edges make improvements in lowering costs on a few contracts, a few products, you may improve some of your processes, but it's you're not going to make a seat change, so to speak, in your overall supply chain effectiveness and, and reduce your overall cost in any substantial way. Yeah, because this is obviously an organizational imperative that involves at every level all of the various departments in the organization. You know, like somebody's got to set up the idea that, look, you know, we have an organizational imperative to ensure that we're working efficiently. This is the second biggest line item. So we all have to work together, but we can't diminish clinical care. And somebody's got to keep an eye on that, too. Part of the message is you can do both. You can, in fact, improve quality of care and reduce your supply costs simultaneously. Organizations that have been effective, I mentioned a couple earlier, are able to do both. Yeah, like no one's going to dismiss Intermountain and UPMC also. So you mentioned a couple of things if we're, we're contemplating what the underlying structural roadmappy kind of items might be that need to be categorically looked at. One of the things, the words that you've mentioned several times, acumen, and then you also have said data several times, and you also said process. So I'm going to assume that those are the three points in our, our triangle here to take a look at. If I'm just kind of taking this from the top and I know I have to address those three areas, what are the steps if I'm the CEO sitting in a room trying to contemplate what we do first, second, third, you know, fourth? What do I do first? You're right. And first of all, in terms of the the three areas categorically to, to focus on to improve your supply chain, data process and people. The first thing is people. Start with a strong leader who has supply chain experience, preferably either having done it extremely successfully at a another health system, which is a top performer, or even better, have significant experience outside the healthcare industry. And you mean a leader of the supply chain group? A, a leader, yeah. So a vice president of supply chain to start with. And beyond that, just relating to people, Getting trained professionals in supply chain, and there's a lot of really strong talent out there, and there, there's a lot of education around supply chain, degrees and certificates, certifications. 
and really build capability. Just going back to what I said before, in terms of getting someone from outside healthcare, the other industries, manufacturing in particular, have much, much stronger supply chain capabilities than healthcare. If across the entire industry, the healthcare industry, health system area, performance is in general mediocre, like you don't want right. to hire somebody from a mediocre, <laughs> right? Where mediocre is, we go from mediocre to more mediocre, <laughs> right? So that's where I would start in terms of people. It's also important to get a handle on data. ERP systems create an item master, which is really what you use for. And ERP stands for enterprise resource planning. So that's the combination of financials, HR, and supply chain. So PeopleSoft, for instance, is, well, PeopleSoft is part of Oracle now, but they're a very big player. SAP is a very big player. What has happened in supply chain is that the ERP system has been effective to a large degree for financials and for HR, but kind of neglected for supply chain. So the data gets very bad. For just as a brief example, an item master that's actively managed where you are keeping track of all of your inventory and everything is current in terms of the number of products you have by category, by supplier, it should be under 5,000 for a medium-sized multi-hospital, but not huge health system, under 5,000. So there should be under 5,000 individual, you know... Items. 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 You're right. And a lot of the supply chain item masters, that a lot of the item masters that we see at health systems have 10,000, 15,000 or more items because they've never been cleaned out. It's just a, a small example. But the point is really getting a handle on data. The other thing that happens is in terms of data, oftentimes we'll go into a supply chain department at a hospital health system and, and we'll say, okay, what's your usage for this product or what, you know, how much do you buy from this supplier? And the supply chain folks don't know. They can't get the data. They don't have a sense of it. So they ask the supplier. And if you can't manage your own usage or not even manage, if you don't have visibility into your own usage, your pricing, what you've used when, then you're right off the jump. You're at an enormous disadvantage. And this occurs because, you know, maybe we're buying from a GPO and I get an invoice that maybe isn't itemized or something, like the detail isn't included or isn't right. tracked. Right. Or a new product is introduced by a rep to a doctor and the, the doctor likes it and it they start ordering it and it's never really determined, okay, is that replacing a previous product? Is it what we want to use going forward? Is it as cost effective? And you multiply that times numerous situations, both clinical and non-clinical around supplies. And pretty soon it, it balloons in terms of the number of products you have and also the lack of visibility into usage, into you know, and there's a product proliferation and into price paid. Understood, because obviously if you don't even know what you're buying, it's really difficult to negotiate for it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Just a thought. Right, right. Okay, so we've got <laughs> we've got step one, you know, get a really good VP of the supply chain. I mean, uh, it's been said so many times that talent can solve a lot of issues. Number two is take a look at your data, your ERP system, because that's kind of the, you know, single point of truth, or it should be. Number three. Yeah, putting a number of processes, supply chain processes in place, being consistent 
about those processes. So for instance, how do we go to market to get bids and developing a request for information, request for proposal, supplier research? That, that's a process. Establish a process for clinician engagement, physician panels on selecting products, on new product introductions, putting a process in place for evaluating suppliers, so supplier performance metrics and and supplier scorecards, and also doing regular reviews with suppliers so you can see usage, you can see what kind of services you may be using from that supplier in addition to the products, which you may not be using. That's the third thing. So this might include, okay, orthopedic surgeons or oncologists or whoever, you know, like once every two years, we're going to all get in a room and take a look at those knee replacements again. And, you know, again, agree as a group, which two we're going to move forward with, you know, like things like that, that again, are really organizationally relevant, not just, you know, like Bob and Pete sit in a room and neither one of them are doctors and they're making choices. Yes. Okay. So we've got people, data, we've got processes, as we said a, a, a couple of different times. Is there anything else, you know, if we're looking at this in a stepwise fashion that we should be taking a look at? I think categorically that pretty well covers it. But what we talked about before is worth reiterating. Sea level engagement and support and end user support, particularly clinicians, but end user involvement. Yeah, I mean, it's really an organizational mind shift in many ways. Like somebody has to determine at the organizational level, hey, we need a break from the past. We have to know where our dollars are being spent and at the procedure level. What we're buying, how much, what we're paying, right. And at the procedure level, especially, and one of the things that we haven't mentioned is value-based care. But if anybody's trying to do a bundle, you know, a a service bundle, like a knee replacement bundle, you have to know how much the components cost to accurately price that bundle. Absolutely. And just a quick thing about value-based care. I mean, one thing we've seen as in orthopedics in particular, this this has happened, but it's also happened in cardiology and other places, aligning the clinicians, even on a gain-sharing opportunity for if we can agree on what we're going to buy together as us as the end users. And if we lower the cost and track that for those items, then there's some degree of gain sharing. And oftentimes it's even, okay, we'll take some of that money and invest in further equipment or capability or technology in the OR or in the cath lab or whatever. But that has, as we're talking through it, that is a mechanism that we've seen be very successful in engaging clinicians. Yeah. And I mean, it's funny that you, and just probably a a further reinforcement of the idea that healthcare is odd in the sense that I think in every other industry, it would be well understood that it's a bit of a zero-sum game, that if you're spending money unnecessarily, then you don't have that money to buy new things. (laughs) It's like, this is why we can't have nice things. You know what I mean? Because you're frittering it away elsewhere. Right. Well, it's becoming more and more of a zero-sum game because margins are compressed. The people are tired of paying higher and higher premiums. It is becoming more and more of a zero-sum game. One of the things, and I keep referencing the conversation I had with Peter Hayes um, a couple of weeks ago because it seems very apropos. He was speaking from the employer side. And, you know, the point that he made repeatedly is that the gravy train is over. There are no more salad days. Like, you can't just go to an employer these days and say, oh, by the way, your premium needs to go up 40% so that we can cover our inefficiencies. Like it ain't going to happen. And yeah. So, you know, one of the things that you had brought up earlier was smaller hospitals and that they can't necessarily, in your words, go it alone. 
So they are left then with this network of regional GPOs or that complicated purchasing cluster of middle people. Do you have any advice if I'm a smaller organization, how I can get a bead on that, you know, Michigas? Yeah, it's similar to what we talked about before in terms of what to focus on. I would focus on, and and we recommend focus on people, process, and data. And it's just going to be at a smaller scale. But investing in supply chain will pay dividends. And and even just investing in a strong supply chain leader will pay dividends. There's some studies that show it's a five to eight to one return on investing in highly capable, highly trained supply chain. This particular study was about supply chain contracting, but it's the same concept that if you invest in a strong, capable leader in supply chain, that's a really good place to start. So if it's a small institution and you do the things that we've been talking about before, despite the fact that you may not be going to the source to source an item, it'll work itself out. Like good people, processes and data are going to enable control of middle people as, you know, as part of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not going to change the paradigm, but it will within the existing paradigm, you can and will be able to improve your supply chain performance and effectiveness. So speaking of middle people and um, sellers. One thing that has been, or one particular entity, which has been talked about at great length often, who is rumored at any given moment to be coming in to revolutionize the hospital supply chain is obviously Amazon. What, What are your thoughts? Right. A number of technology companies, including Amazon, of course, and Google and Apple, have hired people, luminaries or leaders from the healthcare industry. Amazon, which arguably has the most efficient supply chain in the world, there's been a lot of discussion about, okay, how are they going to enter healthcare and how are they going to impact the supply chain for healthcare? Thus far, that's discussions have been going on for a couple of years now. They have not entered in any meaningful way. They do some stuff around pharmaceutical distribution. They bought a company, I think it's called PillPack, but they have not entered in any meaningful way, except to say Amazon, it's funny, uh, Amazon sells a lot of stuff to health systems where people just order because it's so easy to order, but that's backing into it. That's, that's really not directly entering and looking to change slash revolutionize the healthcare supply chain. I wouldn't underestimate Amazon at all, but thus far, we really haven't seen anything material from them. Where can people find more information about the work that you're doing over at GuideHouse? Should they be interested in learning more? A good place to start is just on our website, guidehouse.com, and we have a fair amount of thought leadership. Rob Austin from GuideHouse, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Sure. Great talking to you, Stacey. Thanks. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.